You are listening to audio from The Table. If you'd like to learn more about our community or donate to this ministry, please visit thetabletx.org. Hello, Table Podcast friends. Thank you for joining us yet again. Brett here, grace and peace. So we are uh, in the midst of a series right now titled Unclean, Drawing Near and Runaway Worlds. Uh, the series is based on a Christian book of the same title, Unclean, by Richard Beck. And my hope is that it just simply helps us really understand the life and ministry of Jesus in fresh ways. So our scripture throughout the series has um, been pretty much every week from Matthew chapter 9. And we've done different variations of uh, verses 9 through 13. So I'm going to go ahead and read that um, again. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So in week one of this series, we talked about something called disgust psychology. This is the reaction we have to things we find gross, uh, often because of our ingrained fears of contamination. Um, But what Beck points out in his book is, is this, that the danger of disgust is the way it invades our moral imaginations. It is not merely things that we come to view as unclean. It is people. We think of people as, you know, depending on the metaphor, not just on the wrong path in life or, you know, oh, they sin, they miss the mark. But if we're not careful, we can start to think of people as dirty, gross, toxic. Now, in week two, last week, we unpacked why this issue of disgust seems to be particularly difficult um, for religious communities, Christian churches included. This is like a real temptation for us. And what we named is that the drive for purity, the drive for inner holiness, tends to push us to construct moral walls and boundaries between us and others that ultimately starts to hinder our love, right? We start to think to ourselves, oh, no, 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 I do not go there. That's where the sin happens. No, 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 I don't associate with them. They're morally unclean and I'll get myself unclean if I'm with them. So when Jesus looks at religious people, holy people, and says, you need to learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What what he's saying is that we need to learn that mercy is an act of crossing the chasm that holiness constructs. Love is a movement towards the other, While holiness, when understood primarily as remaining morally pure, which is sort of what sacrifice and the act of sacrifice was all about, is often, um, not always, but often a movement away from others. Now, that brings us to this week. The title of our message is Cracks and Fissures. And what I want to do in this message is help us see how this might actually relate, like everything we've been talking about, how it might actually relate to us in our own lives, as opposed to being primarily a problem for other churches and other Christians. 
So the way I'm going to kind of frame this message is by um, offering up two um, statements of honest, maybe pushback that might be rumbling around in the back of your mind. Uh, Hopefully I'm getting, uh, kind of naming clearly what you might be thinking. So first, you might say something like this, Brett, it seems that social moral disgust, it, it seems very much related to rather extreme forms of exclusion and dehumanization that if I'm completely honest, I don't really participate in. In other words, you might be thinking, you know, because of the strength of the disgust response, because of the intensity of the language, unclean, toxic, dirty, um, it's easy to think that social moral disgust really just has to do with extreme behavior. Think, for example, of the anti-Semitism and genocidal madness of Nazi Germany. Think of um, America's slave years and Jim Crow and all of the horrific racism then and still uh, now. Uh, think of Japanese internment camps during World War II or today of Westboro Baptists and the the blatant homophobia and misogyny um, and just flat out ex- evil, like exclusionary judgmental religion that they're operating with. Right? All that could very easily lead us to think to ourselves, okay, yes, this is absolutely a huge problem in our world and even in church circles. That is absolutely true. But I am like, not those people, you know, I would never call anyone unclean. I wouldn't do like, for example, in our Matthew nine passage, I wouldn't do what the Pharisees did. Like I'm not eating with them, you know, like what I, you might say, I rarely, if ever use purity metaphors to speak of others. Like if anything, knowing just our own kind of history and context of our community, um, if anything, a lot of our folks, we've been on like, uh, the receiving end of these sorts of statements and ideas, you know, we've been victims. Um, but this isn't, this isn't really a thing we struggle with, right? Now I do very much see where this perspective is coming from. And at some level, I, I agree, but what I want us to do, um, this week is look a little bit deeper, uh, look for something more subtle. Here's how I might sum it up, um, in a response. Yes, it's true. Social moral disgust is often related to very extreme forms of exclusion and dehumanization. However, the early warning signs of that dehumanization are present in all of us. Beck, uh, in his book, he puts it this way. He says, racism and hate don't just emerge out of the blue. The research concerning dehumanization suggests that fissures, in other words, tiny cracks, run through every human heart. In good times and with good people, these fissures might not amount to much, but during times of stress and panic, these fissures begin to crack open. Now, what are these these fissures, these small cracks, uh, what I called early warning signs of dehumanization that Beck is naming? Well, he gives a number of examples, but much of it comes back to something very, very basic and fundamental that actually happens to all of us when we are children. As you know, there's like a time when a little baby has absolutely no concept of family versus stranger, which is why you can just pass that kid around to, I mean, anyone, and they're just, you know, a little baby, like, okay, sure. (laughs) They just get passed around. But as we all know, at some point, things shift quite dramatically. (laughs) And suddenly you try to pass off that same little darling child to someone they don't know. 
and all hell breaks loose. Because they're basically, they can't say words, right? But with their screams, what they're saying is, I don't know you. I don't know you. Get away. Stranger danger. Now, what Beck points out is based on the psychological literature, this seems to be the beginning of the fissures. It's rooted in something as fundamental as our preference for people we know versus people we do not know. Family versus others. Now, of course, as we grow older, we learn to incorporate more people who may not be like literal family into the group, into the tribe. But that doesn't mean the boundary making somehow goes away. It's simply that our group grows larger. Our friends, our, of course, family, our maybe church community, people on the softball team I'm with, or, you know, whatever. But still, there is us, and then there is them. There is our kind of people, and then those other kinds of people, the strangers, the outsiders. And, of course, what happens? We learn to love our group. We learn to love them as our very selves. Think, for example, how you might like literally give your life on behalf of your child or a friend. But something very different takes place with outsiders. Like, again, I'm not trying to overstate here. It's not that I'm saying you hate them. Like, no, we don't we don't hate them. At least not totally. It's just that like we see them, you know, they're just like a little bit less of a fully formed, um, you, you know, a a person. They're like just a little bit more of like an it, you know, kind of an object sort of background to my life, sort of an object to be used. Beck, um, he gives a wonderful example of this. He says, just imagine that a, a friend of yours gets a job as a waitress. So on our first night, you and your other friends um, who all know her, you go to the restaurant to surprise her. And of course you request to sit in her section and you look forward to, you know, leaving a big old tip and it's going to be great. So you get there and right away you can see, oh, this place is packed. And then you catch the eye of your friend and you just know she is stressing out. And in fact, when she drops by your table, um, which takes her like 15 minutes, She looks at you and she says, oh, y'all, I'm so sorry. We are absolutely slammed. I'm behind on drink and food orders. I am stressing like she's about to cry. Now, in that moment, what would you say? How would you respond? Of course, you would be gracious, right? You'd say, hey, hey, don't worry about us tonight. Take care of everyone else. Don't stress. And this gesture, this would be as natural to you as breathing, Why? Because she is in your circle of care. She's in your group. She, if not literally family, she is like family. Now, this is probably a good time to name pushback point number two, kind of in keeping with the waitress example and tying in with the message last week. You might say something like this. "Um, I consistently, not perfectly, but Brett, I consistently choose to extend mercy and grace and love and compassion to my family, to my friends, to my community. I rarely, if ever, build walls of exclusion and dehumanization. Now, in response to that, I would say something like this. Look, I agree. However, the deeper challenge is to extend that same mercy and grace to every person. Strangers, outsiders, even enemies included. See, let's imagine a different scenario, slightly different. In this moment, 
You and your friends go out on a Friday night to eat, but your server, who honestly you barely even notice, is terrible. I mean, everything is late. She forgets a drink order. You don't even get a straw. And yes, of course, like the place is busy, but hey, this is her job, so tough luck. And as the night progresses, you feel increasingly frustrated, maybe even openly angry. You complain to the manager. You leave little, if any, tip. Now, why the difference? Why, in this case, did you and I fail to extend mercy, compassion, and grace? It's because the stranger falls outside your moral circle of care. Richard Beck sums it up this way. He says, in a deep psychological sense, this server wasn't really human to me. She was part of the backdrop of our lives, part of the teeming, anonymous masses toward which I feel indifference, fear, or frustration. Now, what's going on here? Why the difference? Why this subtle process of dehumanization towards a stranger? Well, it's because when we make a distinction in our minds between two groups, whether it's the good people I know versus, you know, those very questionable strangers or um, men as opposed to women or Muslims as opposed to Christians or Democrats versus Republicans, whatever it is, we tend to reason that there are certain essential features that make my group superior. So you might say something like, well, men, you know, men, they, they're kind of superior in the, the leaders because they're rational and clear-headed as opposed to, you know, the emotional women or whatever. <laughs> That's what makes us men. Okay. Or you might say, well, you know, Muslims, they're just very fanatical, whereas Christians, we're always modest and reasonable. <laughs> Have you met Christians? Uh, or, or you might say, well, Republicans. Now, Republicans, they're principled. Democrats, oh my, they just follow their feelings. They're just wimpy. Or to reverse it, Democrats, now Democrats are compassionate. Republicans, hmm, they're just bigots. Can you see how we do this? The anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss said it this way, humankind ceases at the border of the tribe. In other words, everyone in my tribe now, we're all fully human, but mm, those outsiders. It's interesting. Psychologists, they've done studies with um, reaction times where you're shown pictures on a screen and you have to, as quickly as you can, associate that person or that, that group with like good moral um, or just personal good positive characteristics. And they've done this um, along racial lines. They've done it with nationalities and different cultures. They've um, done it with office workers who you're close to versus those who are sort of strangers, like you recognize them, but you don't really know them. And it's interesting, again and again and again, um, our brains just very quickly associate good characteristics with our group, but we struggle with the out-group. Like, we can overcome it, we can associate good characteristics, but it's like our brains take a little bit longer to do. It doesn't feel as natural to us as, you know, breathing. Why? Well, we might say it this way, the subtle impulse to dehumanize is always with us, quietly watering the seeds of disgust within. There's uh, a really marvelous commencement speech. It's a little bit old now, so maybe it's uh, 
not as popular as it once was, I don't know, but it's um, by David Foster Wallace, and he delivered this commencement speech to the graduates of Kenyon College. It was like 17 years ago. Um, it's titled, This is Water. Maybe some of you have heard it. It is marvelous. Um, and what I want to do is read a portion of it, because towards the end, Wallace, well, he basically names how commencement speeches to graduates almost never talk about what our lives actually consist of. You know, with all its language, their language of like, shoot for the stars, you know, and all that. He's like, look, your actual life, it's like the tedium of working long hours and traffic and grocery shopping and trying not to get infuriated everyone around us. And um, so he's basically kind of critiquing our default setting. This mode we get into in the ways, like sort of terrible ways, we start to think of others. Um, and what I want you to notice is um, pay attention to the way his language of like, it starts off sort of more gentle, like the subtle dehumanizing, but then it slides towards disgust. So just to be clear, he's not saying this is good. He's saying this is what we do and it's slightly awful. So this is uh, now David Foster Wallace. He says, by way of example, Let's say it's an average adult day. So you get up in the morning, you go to your challenging white collar uh, college graduate job, you work hard for eight or 10 hours. At the end of the day, of course, you're tired, you're so much stressed. All you want to do is go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early because, of course, you have to get up the next day and do it all again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. And so now after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of the workday and the traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded. Because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. And the store is hideously lit and infused with soul-killing Muzak or corporate pop. It's pretty much the last place you want to be. But you can't just get in and out quickly. No, no, you have to wander all over the huge, overlit store's confusing aisles to find the stuff you want. You have to maneuver your junky cart through all these other tired, hurried people with carts. And eventually... You get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of the day rush. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating. But you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register who is overworked at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here. <laughs> but anyway, you finally get to the checkout lines front. You pay for your food. And you get, cold, you get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. And then you have to take your creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, literary parking lot. And you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic. Everyone here has done this, of course, but it hasn't yet been part of you graduates' life routine day after week after month after year, but it will be, and many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines besides. But that's not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is going to come in, because the traffic jams and the crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision 
about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me, about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look at how deeply and personally unfair this is. Or, of course, if I'm in a more socially conscious, liberal arts form of my default setting. (laughs) You can tell he knows his audience, by the way. He says, I can spend time in the end-of-day traffic being disgusted about all the huge, stupid, lane-blocking SUVs and Hummers and V12 pickup trucks burning their wasteful, selfish 40-gallon tanks of gas. And I can dwell on the fact that the patriotic or religious bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles driven by the ugliest, most inconsiderate and aggressive drivers. And I can think about how our children's children will despise us for wasting all the future's fuel and probably screwing up the climate and how spoiled and stupid and selfish and disgusting we all are and how modern consumer society just sucks and so forth and so on. (laughs) Now, this is a very intense but wonderfully insightful analysis of exactly what Beck in the book Unclean is naming. I mean, you could hear it all through right? It starts with the disgust factor of just the store of things, but slowly it slides into the dehumanization of people and then into disgust of people. In other words, if we aren't careful, we begin to build walls between us and them. Walls of moral judgment. Walls of a subtle and sometimes not so subtle dehumanization. But what does love do? Well, as we named last week, yes, love calls us to care for the people close to us. Yes, to love our children, our church community, our friends, our family. Yes, but that's only step one. Step two is loving the driver of the vehicle with the bumper sticker you despise. It's loving the stressed out waitress, the people in your way at the grocery store the person you find offensive at the office. In other words, to love the people who love me, that should be a given. But to love those outside my circle of care, the teeming anonymous masses of humanity, oh, that takes attention, awareness, and vigilance. Now, I want to close with a few very practical examples. Like, how might this actually look to live it out in your life? First, ask your waiter or waitress their name and treat them like your best friend. Speak to your janitor at work. Make friends with someone you disagree with politically or religiously. Believe the best about the driver cutting you off. Perhaps they have somewhere very important to get. Look for the best in religious or political traditions you disagree with. Pray for someone you believe to be irredeemably horrible. 
Imagine your worst enemy as a child. See yourself living their life, becoming who they become. This is how we can begin to cross the boundaries that holiness and disgust have constructed, not only with those we find it natural to love, but precisely with those we do not. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.